Hi, I'm Dr. Troni Lodog, physician, teacher, and author. Thank you for joining me for today's chat, brought to you by The Vitamin Shop. Today I was hoping that we could explore the topic of pain, particularly as it relates to this mind-body connection. You know, I think we all know the stats. Oh my gosh, they're scary when you think about it. Pain, or sort of chronic pain, affects more than 100 million Americans, more than heart disease, cancer, and diabetes combined. Think about that. I mean, that's a lot of people who are in pain, and we tend to focus a lot more of our energy on how do we reduce the risk of heart disease, how do we prevent diabetes, how do we treat cancer and post-cancer. And what I'm telling you is, when you add all of the people living with all of those things combined, we have more Americans that are suffering with pain. Pain costs us about $500 billion to the U.S. economy, both in medical treatment, but also in just, you know, we can't take care of our kids, we can't show up to work, we can't get our kids to school, we can't get ourselves to work or school. All of that adds up. So it's huge. And of course, this is one of the reasons that pain is now becoming a bigger topic because. These are real dollars. This is real money. It's a half a trillion dollars. So when we're talking about the Affordable Care Act or insurance or access or all these kinds of things, and we think about just how much this is costing us, this is a huge amount of our dollars that are spent on this, and we're still not doing a very good job taking care of it. In 2012, more than 5% of the entire population that was over 12 was using opioid pain relievers for non-medical uses. I want you to think about that. 5% of us over the age of 12 living in the United States were using opiates, opiate medications for things other than pain. Really speaks to the problem that we're hearing about on the news, all of the problems with abuse and the people that are on prescription pain medications, but many of them when they get cut off then are turning to street opiates like heroin, things like this. It's really just kind of crazy. There's been a uh, about a five-fold increase in the treatment admissions, people that are coming in for problems with prescription pain relievers. We're seeing more people coming in for help because they're addicted to prescription painkillers. So clearly what we're doing is not ideal because many, many people are abusing these drugs and even when they're using them for their pain, many of them are becoming habituated to them, which is then leading to another problem altogether. I also have to just say, I teach a lot on pharmacology and on medication use. And it may stagger you to know that the U.S. accounts for 100% of all the hydrocodone, things like Vicodin, and 81% of oxycodone, things like Percocet, used in the world. The United States use 100% of the hydrocodone, 81% of oxycodone, for the entire globe. It doesn't mean other places and other people are not in pain. What it means is that we're prescribing too many of these medications. And, you know, pain is so complicated. It's so complex. It impacts all parts of our life. And we don't want people to suffer. 
So we went a while back. We weren't doing a very good job of managing pain. Like when I was, you know, training in that back in the 1990s, we would have patients come through and we didn't adequately address their pain. And then we kind of got slapped on the wrist. Doctors were told, you're not addressing these people's pain. So then we started getting better about addressing pain or addressing more pain. And then we've created this problem now with this overuse of these medications and in many cases, abuse of these medications. But the pain is still here, and the pain is still real. It impacts every part of our life when we're in it. That's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time today talking about what are some of the non-pharmacologic approaches to pain, and what are we learning about meditation and neurofeedback and yoga And some of these other sort of modalities or approaches or self-care things people can do that are actually showing in the research to have significant benefit for people with chronic pain. The first thing I would say is that if you are somebody listening and you have a chronic pain condition or you love somebody or know somebody with a chronic pain condition, I really hope that you are using an integrative team approach, right? So it's not maybe just one primary care provider that's managing this, but have you talked to an acupuncturist? Acupuncture can be so beneficial for many kinds of pain. Have you seen a chiropractor or a massage therapist that could help you with musculoskeletal pain or a physical therapist, right? Are these parts of your team, are these team members, what about a behavioral therapist or a somebody who can help you with all of the emotional parts of the pain that are still driving you and maybe driving certain behaviors? So I just want to set the stage for saying that I believe of all the things we deal with, that pain is one of those that is most appropriately addressed by a team of people that can work together to help you. So I have long been fascinated about pain because I recognized at a young age that people have a different pain threshold. People experience pain in different ways. For myself, I was thrown from a horse. I was a kid and I was on one without a saddle and I was bringing another one in on a lead rope and one bit the other and then I got dumped. And when I got off the horse, my left arm was about five inches longer than it should have been because my collarbone just shattered. And I'm walking back to the stable, which was quite a ways because I was way out in one of the outer paddocks. And I'm walking with blood and this broken bone and just like, what happened? I was like 11 years old, maybe 12 years old. And I get back and the man who owned the stables was like, oh my gosh, let's go get you situated at my house and we'll wait for your parents. While I'm there, I'm beginning to realize that I'm in a lot of pain. I did not feel any pain for like the first 15 minutes. I realized that maybe I was a little bit in shock, but my brain had not registered that I was really hurt. It wasn't until I was sort of sitting down and waiting for my parents to come get me that I recognized that I was actually in a lot of pain. And that's one of the things that we have really learned in pain is that pain is really a function of the brain. 
as much as it is a function of the part of the body that has been injured. Normally, when we injure a part of our body, the body is telling our brain it's sending all these messages up there because the purpose of pain is to improve your chance of survival. That's going to change behaviors so that you don't further injure yourself. So for me, I had busted my collarbone. It was bleeding. It was broken. It was pretty bad. But I was way out in a field all by myself where nobody could hear me. My brain was taking in all these messages, but what I needed to do was actually get to where I could get help. And once I got to where I could get help is when my brain allowed me to experience the pain. And then I sat very, very quiet and I didn't move because movement really aggravated the pain. The purpose of pain is really to send a warning signal so that we can modify our behavior to protect ourselves so we don't continue to injure ourselves. It fascinates me that you can break a bone or a soldier in a war can lose a leg and not even feel that they've lost their leg until they're at a place or a space where it's safe for them to actually experience the pain. So the first thing I want to just remind us is that pain is processed by the brain. And this is in part what sets the foundation for this mind-body connection and why your brain can actually increase your pain tolerance and actually through training your brain, you can make it so that even though you're experiencing pain, you don't experience it to the degree that you might otherwise. The brain is a very powerful part of our experience of pain. We can turn up or down the volume of our pain consciously. Consciously, we can turn up or down our pain threshold. And this is something that can be learned. One of the problems with this is that there's a lot of mechanisms in our body that make us anticipate pain and make us keep our pain chronic. Not that we're doing this consciously, but say I hurt my back at work, lifting boxes. I'm six weeks. It takes time for my back to get better. Oh, it was terrible. I could hardly move. So now I'm finally feeling better, but now I'm ready to go back to work. And I walk in and I see the boxes. My brain is already processing the fact that lifting boxes was associated with significant pain. So now I'm already anticipating pain. And my memories are telling me I want to avoid whatever behavior caused the pain to begin with. That's fine if it's some acute problem. The issue is people who have chronic pain syndromes feel pain every day. So there's all kinds of messages and signals telling them, you know, if you do this, you're going to hurt. If you do that, it's going to hurt. When you go to sleep, it hurts. It wakes you up. So there's these memories that turn up the volume. What began as a protective strategy for the brain to protect us from further injury, when we move into this chronic pain, what ends up happening is that all these memories and all these messages basically turn up the volume real loud, real long, and we begin to experience pain in a very exaggerated way. Now, please know I'm not saying you're not feeling the pain. What I'm saying is that it's like if I have music playing and I turn up the speakers really loud, everything's loud. The music was always there. Now it's just really, really loud. Your pain was there, but now it's really amplified. This is where meditation, where neurofeedback, where a lot of these types of trainings that you can train the brain may actually have powerful effects. 
in people living this way. Sometimes somebody comes in in a chronic pain and they're really hurting and you say, I want you to start meditating. It's like that typically doesn't go down well because people are like, you're not appreciating how much pain I'm in. And what I'm trying to say is I definitely get that people are in pain, but I want to find ways to turn down the volume. I want to try to find ways that we can turn down that volume on that pain so that you can experience less pain, you can take less medication, and we can get you enjoying your life. The data on biofeedback, neurofeedback, etc., I've always been intrigued by because biofeedback was basically born from this observation that we can manipulate certain bodily functions by just being conscious of them. Now, how do you do that? Well, it sprang from some of this early research that found you could take Buddhist monks or monks up in India or in Tibet, and you could put them out in very cold weather. And they would take off their robe and they could generate steam, meaning they could elevate their body temperature through just the power of their mind. That a lot of people didn't believe. And when you got researchers objectively looking at the data, they were like, wow. And so it was the first time that in Western medicine, maybe not in Eastern or in other traditions, but it was the first time in Western medicine we began to go, hmm, maybe through training, there are ways that we can actually help people control things like blood pressure. And that was where we started doing research with biofeedback. So there were these instruments that were created that could measure your breathing and your heartbeat and your skin temperature and all the, you know, things that we wanted to measure. And the person, when they were hooked up to this instrument, the researcher would say things like, okay, so I want you to really think, tell me about a time when you were really angry or when you were really afraid. And then the person, when they started talking about it, they would watch how their breath changed, their heart rate changed, their skin temperature, their muscle tension. They would begin to see that. And then the researcher would say, tell me about a time when you were really happy. What did it look like? Where were you? Tell me what you were feeling. And then the person would start to go through this feeling and this memory. And then they would watch how it changed all of these objective measures. And this is when we began to see that biofeedback was a way of helping people learn that they actually had more control over their bodies than they realized. Neurofeedback came from this field of biofeedback, but it's more specifically applied to your brain. There have been a lot of interesting studies about this because now we can use specialized technology, things like functional magnetic resonance imaging. It's like a functional MRI, which can actually look at activity in different parts of the brain. And it allows people, the person who has pain, to actually objectively be able to see, you know, when they think certain thoughts or when they focus on certain areas, how it can increase their pain level, but also how they could lower their pain level. And, you know, for some of this research, a lot of it was done out at Stanford University. I mean, people were like, for the first time going, oh my gosh, it's not like I'm completely pain-free, but I didn't take any medication. I don't feel drugged and I am in less pain. So this is incredibly empowering for people who feel very disempowered by the chronicity and just the long-lasting effects of the pain that they've been experiencing. 
meditation has found very similar effects. We know that when we put people into meditation programs, for example, and we compare them to people who don't do mindfulness meditation or don't do meditation, that there's about a 57% difference in reduction in pain. So when we randomize people with chronic pain to either a group where they are doing meditation and learning meditation or to a group that's maybe doing education on back pain, you have to create some sort of control group. When we compare those two groups, the people who do the mindfulness meditation have a significant reduction in their pain, sometimes up to 50 to 57% reduction in pain. That's dramatic. That's actually a pretty dramatic reduction. It means that they don't need to take as much medication. It means that then they don't get all the constipation that comes from the drugs or feeling drugged out so they can't drive. I mean, all of these things begin to add up. The other thing is that through meditation, people can actually raise their pain threshold, meaning it takes more for them to actually experience pain. Now, we've all known this. We have all known somebody that you barely step on the edge of their toe and they're like, oh, ow. I mean, they're freaking out. And other people, you could basically drop a can of paint on their toe and they barely acknowledge it. It's not that one is a baby and one's really macho, though that's kind of the way we may perceive it. It's really that they have different pain thresholds. And in part, that has to do with brain and the way the brain works. And anybody can increase their brain's ability to quiet the volume of the pain that they're feeling from their body. It's within anybody's ability to do this. You know, I would also say if you're living with chronic pain, that not only can these neurofeedback and meditation, which I would encourage you, like get some meditation apps, go to a meditation class, watch some YouTube videos. I don't care how you do it. Figure out how to start working up 10 to 15 minutes a couple times a day of meditation. It will change your life. I'm just telling you, it will change your life. Other things that you can do if you're experiencing pain, because we still want you moving and we still want you staying healthy, I would say think about something like yoga. And remember, if you're going to go for a class, make sure you look for you know one like a hatha yoga, which is a more gentle form. And especially if there's one that maybe caters to people who are older or people who have pain conditions, right? I remember I went with one of my girlfriends and she's like, let's go to yoga. And I was like, sure. We got off work. We changed into our clothes. We go in and it's an Ashtanga yoga class. And I am telling you, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Talk about a hard workout. That would not be great for somebody with chronic pain. So just remember there's different types of yoga. But what we know is researchers who have looked at people with chronic pain doing yoga, gentle types of yoga, they found that within about eight weeks of doing the yoga training, did people feel better, like they were less depressed, less anxious, but they also reported major reductions in their pain. So I just have to say, yoga is another one of these gifts kind of from the East, along with meditation and acupuncture that are moving in and becoming much more mainstream. And I would just tell you, Yoga could be a wonderful class for you if you are dealing with pain because it quiets that sympathetic nervous system and allows you to relax and it quiets the brain. It turns down the volume. 
I was a massage therapist long before I was a physician, so I'm a huge fan of massage therapy. And when we look at the studies looking at people getting massage, at the end of 10 weeks, people who got massage for back pain versus standard care like painkillers, anti-inflammatories, muscle relaxants, etc., the person who got the 10 weeks of massage versus got the 10 weeks of standard therapy for lower back pain actually showed that the group that did the massage spent fewer days in bed, they used less medication like anti-inflammatories, and they were active quicker than the standard care group. So, you know, they said, I'm moving better, I have less back pain. I am a huge fan of massage. And you know what? Ask what kind of massage you want. The Swedish massage is sort of the long stroke massage that many people find deeply relaxing. But there are also deep tissue types of massage that may be relevant for you. Just make sure you're going to a good licensed massage therapist. Ask around. Ask chiropractors. Ask your healthcare provider. Ask people at the health food store who they think is a great massage therapist. Call and go in and see. I think massage is amazing. And if you're somebody that's struggling with finances, if you're in a big enough community where there's a massage school, the students have to do so many massages to get their license. And most of the student massages are either done by donation or like a $5, $10 contribution. So if massage is something you think would be helpful for you, there's a number of ways to make that happen. I would also just say that if you're somebody living with chronic pain, take a little inventory of your emotional well-being. We express our feelings through our body. That's a lot of what human beings do. When you fall in love and that first kiss and your heart races and you tingle inside and your face blushes, that's all a physiologic response to a feeling, to an emotion. What I'm trying to say is that we express many, many of our feelings through our body, but in ways that we often don't think about. So if you're feeling a lot of exhaustion, if you're feeling a lot of anger, if you're holding a lot of resentment, a lot of things like this, we definitely know that they take a big toll on our health and they also make us experience deeper pain. We feel the pain. It's amplified. I'm not saying that your anger is what's causing your back pain. What I'm saying is that if you have a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, there's a lot of stress in your life, by not dealing with it, it amplifies the pain that you're feeling in your back. I would also just say that I think it's interesting that we have often used the language of pain when we describe things, like you're a pain in the neck. I mean, really? You're a pain in the neck? Like, how did that ever come to be? Why would we say something like that? What a pain in the back. People use these expressions to sort of connect how emotions can cause pain in our body. You know, just like sadness, it broke my heart, right? There's this connection that language has always used to remind us that our mind and our body are deeply intertwined. And that when our mind is feeling certain things, we can express it in our bodies. And when our body is feeling certain things, we interpret it in our mind. And that it is by recognizing that there is this powerful, powerful connection that exists between the brain, the central nervous system, and the rest of us. It allows us to begin to empower ourselves to 
improve our lives. I think all of us have probably been in pain at some point or another, and we remember how it feels. It doesn't feel good. And some of you listening may have more chronic kinds of pain, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, Lyme disease, things that make you feel pain on a deeper, more broad level. I want to just encourage you, again, get a team of people that can help you. Make sure things like your vitamin D levels have been checked. You may not realize, but low vitamin D actually exacerbates pain. It's also like it turns up the volume. Maybe you need more omega-3s to tamp down inflammation. There's a whole number of things that maybe a nutritionist could help you with. And then the acupuncturist. I have personally seen many patients get just phenomenal results from acupuncture. I'm serious. And massage. I had, I'll just tell you as a little aside, I had a woman who came in to see me many years ago who had chronic pelvic pain. She just constantly had pain down in her pelvis. And she had had exploratory surgery. They went in to see if she had endometriosis or anything causing this. They didn't see anything. And then she just had scars from the surgery. They put her on medications. Finally, they sent her to a psychiatrist who put her on antidepressants and also, you know, wanted to explore possible sexual trauma. All of these things are very reasonable, except this woman was like, I've never been sexually abused. I have a lot of chronic pain. It started in my 20s. I'm really uncomfortable. And when she came to see me, she was looking for herbs and things like this, right? She was looking for other ways to try to manage her pain because she just didn't want to be drugged all the time. I said, well, you know, I'm going to send you over to a massage therapist. I was in Albuquerque at the time, and I said she does a lot of neuromuscular therapy, and she's just one of the most amazing massage teachers and massage therapists I've ever known. And I sent her over, and about five weeks later, she came back in for her follow-up, and she had brought the note from her massage therapist, who I knew. Essentially, I kid you not, true story. She's like, well, she started poking and like putting pressure way down on my pubic bone. And it started reproducing all the pain. I could hardly take it. I could hardly take it. And, I'm, and I told her, I can't do this if, you know, this is what's going to be, that I'm going to just come and be in pain all the time. And she said, well, you're having trigger points. And she said, by finding these trigger points and working through them, we can quit getting this referral pain that you're getting everywhere. So she started really gently, and she started working a lot with these, like, psoas muscles, and she started working a lot on these attachments. And within five weeks, and and she had some stretching homework that she asked the woman to do, the massage therapist did, and warm baths and things like this. But this is a woman who'd had surgery, seen multiple pain specialists, been to the chiropractor, had been sent to psychiatry, had been placed on antidepressants, and her pain was all due to basically the way her muscles attach to her pubic symphysis. And simply by getting her to the right person, her pain was gone. So sometimes we don't know what we don't know, which is why I encourage you to think broadly when it comes to your pain. Acupuncture, chiropractic, massage, yoga, Maybe even a cognitive behavioral therapist, somebody that can help you find ways to use your mind to help you deal with your pain, especially if it's a chronic pain. The brain and the body are definitely intertwined. We cannot keep doing what we're doing 
with the hundred million Americans that are suffering with pain. We have got to get out in front of this, and we have to have a bigger, broader approach. It's not to say that these medications should not be used, especially for a short time during the acute phase part of the pain. But one of the most difficult things is once you get into this pain system, it can get really hard to get out of it. Once that volume gets turned up and left on too loud, too long, you may be still experiencing pain that is out of proportion to what your body's actually experiencing. Don't ever underestimate the power of your own mind. Never underestimate the power, the power that you have to improve your life no matter where you are at. Find the people that can help you. Find the tools that you need. And you, too, can begin to experience a richer, more full life no matter what your condition is, no matter what the pain is that you're dealing with. There are ways to help you feel better. I want to thank you for spending some of your busy time with me today. I hope that I was able to share some ideas with you, some thoughts with you, that maybe will allow you to go out and find ways to help yourself or somebody you care about who may be dealing with chronic pain. I also hope that you continue to find ways to inspire and nourish yourself so that you can thrive every day. Until next time.